Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is uh, a guest who's been with us a number of times. I, you know, one of these days I'm going to go back and count how many times you've been on this program, John, but it's always good to have John on. He's currently serving as the president of the John William Pope Foundation and uh, has previously been with the John Locke Foundation. Um, and uh, as I said, we always look forward to John being with us because uh, he always brings a new light to some very interesting topics of the day. John is also the author of a number of books. Um, and uh, so we usually ask him uh, what book he is now working on because you're almost always working on a new book. So. <laughs> well, that's true. I, last year, I, I went in sort of a different direction and, and had my first novel published, a historical fantasy novel set during the American Revolution. It's called Mountain Folk. It came out last summer. And the sequel is called Forest Folk, and that book comes out in April. And that will be, again, a historical fantasy novel, so it combines uh, real-life historical characters with uh, monsters and, and, and elves and dwarves. And this particular book, Forest Folk, is set during the War of 1812. And much of, a lot of the action actually happens in North Carolina. There's a lot of scenes at Chimney Rock, uh, there, we make a visit to Greensboro uh, in this story and the Guilford College campus. Uh, it wasn't called Guilford College at the time, but we have a little bit of action there and in Chatham County. Uh, but this is, a, this is a book that's set in the early 1800s and uh, comes out in April. And it's been a lot of fun. Well, you know, it's interesting because Mike Walden, who's also on our program a lot, he's also writing fiction now. Yeah. Of course, you know, some of us, John, sort of think some of your uh, nonfiction books were kind of fictional anyway, but I'll leave that one alone. I won't get into that. I I will take that as long as people are willing to read the real thing this time. I mean, instead of (laughs) pretending to write nonfiction, now I'm just going to write fiction and people can just get into it. Well, of course, one of the great books you wrote in 2015 was Jim Martin and the Rise of North Carolina Republicans. It was a great book, and uh, all your books are interesting. Uh, Of course, you usually have a word of the day. John's vocabulary is a little uh, larger than mine. Well, uh, it's considerably larger than mine, but uh, you usually have a word of the day for us. So what is your word of the day today? Well, I'm going to be kind of embarrassed to say that I'm unprepared for this part of our show today, Don. I, I, I had a busy day. I didn't have time to sort of think through a really, really good, long, complicated, obscure word. Uh, I can tell since we're recording this on Zoom and I can see your face, I, I can tell that I'm, I'm making you rather dolorous. Oh, uh, that's but good. There's, no, there's nothing I can do about it. I just couldn't come up with a, so now, an interesting vocabulary. So, word. Uh, so I'll know how I look. What does that mean? Oh, dolorous. Oh, well, maybe we'll make that our vocabulary word. Uh, that just means sorrowful. You know, if you have a dolorous look, it means you're really conveying a lot of sorrow. Well, you know, I, I think that's a great word, but I'm not sure why people would just use sorrowful. But uh, anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, I introduced uh, the topic for this segment in the prior segment, and I said, let's let's talk about the future of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And we've uh, dallied around here to where you've got about five minutes to spend on each. So, uh you can start with either party and just sort of look ahead and say, what's the future of the Democratic Party in North Carolina? And what is the future of the Republican Party in North Carolina? 
The Democratic Party uh, in North Carolina uh, is in some degree of distress. Now, that's the national story, but in North Carolina in particular, here's the problem. Democrats can get elected. Obviously, we have a Democratic governor who was elected in 2016. He was reelected in 2020. We've had right now we have four of the seven Supreme Court justices are Democrats, three are Republicans. There are some seats open this fall, and I think the Republicans have a good shot of becoming a majority on the Supreme Court. But it's a competitive state. Democrats can win statewide, not as much as they used to, but it's certainly possible. Here's their problem, though. At the legislative level, because of the way Democrats and Republicans and independents have sort of been sorting themselves out and and changed some to some extent shifting allegiances, uh, the Democrats are now heavily concentrated in urban counties. Uh, the kind of rural support the Democrats had for a long time, except in a few areas where African American. Uh, voters make up a significant share of the counties, but in most rural areas, Democrats just aren't competitive anymore. So we get down to the suburbs, we get down to places like a, a Cabarrus County or Gaston County or Johnston County or Alamance County, uh, uh, Guilford and parts of Guilford and, and Forsyth counties, where it's a suburban area. It's not the center of town and it's not a farm. It's not a small town. It's somewhere in between. And the problem there for Democrats is that they're having a lot of trouble being competitive in those races for legislature, even when they have pretty good years. I mean, they win some of them when they have a good year and they lose some of them. In a bad year, they lose almost all of them. And so Democrats in North Carolina, while they want to elect another governor, they want to elect other statewide officials, they want to elect a U.S. senator, they'd like to have another seat or two in Congress. But for them, the by far the most important institution that they controlled for a hundred years and no longer do is the General Assembly, the legislature. It's where the bulk of power is in state government. We have, just like at the federal level, we have three branches of government, legislative, executive, and judicial. But in North Carolina politics, in North Carolina government, these three branches, while separate, are not really equal in power the legislature simply has a lot more authority. And the fact that the Republicans have been in charge for 10 years still drives Democrats to distraction. The idea they might be in charge for another 10 years makes them dolorous, <laughs> to use a term. And I, it's become obvious to, that they haven't figured out what to do. Now, I think what they should do is figure out a way to recapture the center because the Republicans have the right, they have conservative voters, used to be conservative Democrats, but not, not nothing really anymore there. Um, but they've also, the Republicans have also captured a lot of centrist voters on economic questions in North Carolina. Uh, the Republicans uh, cut taxes, reduced regulations, streamlined state government, made some changes in funding and so forth. And the Democrats said it would be a disaster and nobody would want to live here anymore. And we wouldn't be a leader of the South. And it wasn't a disaster. People are moving here every year. People can, you can see that. Our economy's doing pretty well. And so the Democratic narrative that North Carolina was great, much better than the rest of the South, because it was run more by Democrats. And now that the Republicans in charge, North Carolina is going to sink like a stone. It just didn't work. It's not true. It didn't happen. And so their narrative is all messed up. They've got to figure out a way to get back in power uh, in the legislature in their minds or else they will, they will be on the outside looking in. And I just don't think they figured it out. I think that their base 
will not allow them to embrace some of the policies that would put them into a position to win suburban districts and therefore win the legislature again. So I think in North Carolina, that's the Democratic problem or slash the Republican opportunity. Now, on the Republican side in North Carolina, uh, they have the flip side issue, which is they have cracked the nut when it comes to the legislature. It's not simply about gerrymandering. I mean, gerrymandering is a problem, and I'm in favor of reforming it. But even if you didn't have gerrymandering, Republicans would have an edge in the General Assembly. And it's because they have captured not just the rural areas that used to be competitive or even lean Democratic, um, but they win more than their fair share of elections in the metro areas by winning those suburban voters. And um, they've got a, a mission. They've got some issues that will help them do that even more. Crime is a big issue. Democrats have horribly mishandled the, the criminal justice issue to their disadvantage. And right now, uh, education has become a Republican issue. Republicans want kids to be able to go to school and they want them to be able to go to school and learn basic subjects and not be indoctrinated. And those two issues are working very well for the Republicans and Democrats who think otherwise are not plugged into reality. Now, the Democrats have some other issues that are good for them. I'm just saying those two issues are great for Republicans. They happen to be happen to be at the top of the list of what Republicans are concerned or what voters are concerned about right now. But here's the problem for Republicans. First of all, they have only elected one Republican governor, one, one Republican governor for four years since 1992. It's a long time for the Democrats to own the governor's mansion. Um, and will they be able to break that streak in 2024? I don't know. It's not obvious to me they, that, that it's inevitable. The Democrats are still competitive on that seat. And related to that, in my opinion, again, people may disagree with me, but here's my take on it. They still have the Trump problem, which is that some of Donald Trump's policies that were enacted during his administration were successful and popular, but he is not popular. He has never really been popular. And when you run in a Trumpian sort of way, um, it turns off some of those suburban voters that I was talking about earlier. And I mean, they're not just in the suburbs, but a lot of them are in the suburbs and they will vote for Republicans on a variety of issues, but they don't want somebody who seems mean or nasty. And so um, the Republicans have to figure out a way to uh, hold the voters they have and add to that for governor. And I think that speaks to someone running for governor who sounds like a calm, reasoned, uh, uh, trustworthy person to put in charge of the executive branch. That's what Roy Cooper sounded like. Years ago, it's what Mike Easley sounded like. It's certainly what Jim Hunt sounded like. Uh, Republicans have not always run candidates who sounded like that. And they're going to need to come up with a candidate to do that. So that's their challenge. I think they have a very good shot of winning the U.S. Senate seat, which, of course, would be holding it since it's Richard Burr's seat that he's retiring from. They have a very good shot of winning it in 2022. They have a good shot of building their legislative majorities. They have a shot of doing well in some county races in 2022, maybe winning back some sheriff seats and and county commission seats and things like that. So they have a lot of things going for them right now because of Democratic mistakes in Washington and because of good governance by Republicans in, in Raleigh. But they've got to crack their own nut, which is getting the governor's office back so that they can enact some of the policies that they want to enact 
without, without them being vetoed. And then, the, and then those policies be carried out in a way that the Republican legislature would like. Well, obviously, North Carolina is growing. It's a growth state. We uh, have a, one announcement after another about uh, uh, big, high-paying jobs coming in. But most of those people who are coming in are going to be very similar to ones who are already here. They're, 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 they come in sort of tainted purple to begin with. So they sort of join, at least that's my take, they sort of join the crowd. And some may be Democrats and some may be Republicans, but most of them are going to be somewhere in the middle of the road. Yeah, a lot, enough of them are that I don't think that in-migration is going to change the situation in the short run. Years ago, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, into the ni- in, in the late 90s, in-migration was a pro-Republican trend in North Carolina. As people moved here, they were more likely to be Republican than the natives were. And so this actually moved the state towards Republicans to have newcomers from other places. Now, after the turn of the millennium, turn of the century, you know, the last 20 years, the, the people coming in have been a little more democratic than the, the maybe the median voter. But right now, actually, Don, I think you've got it exactly right. I think the people coming in are around the median voter. I mean, they're they're not hardcore Republicans. They're not just progressive left. There's all sorts of different kinds of vote. There are young people moving here who are going to be reliably Democratic voters. There are older voters retiring here or moving here for business or to take a job, and they're Republican voters. And then there's a good swath in the middle uh, who are up for grabs. And I don't think that immigration is the story right now. I don't think that's going to help or hurt Republicans in the next few years. Um, It's really what I was talking about earlier. How are you positioned on issues? The Democrats are horribly positioned on criminal justice and on education right now. Um, And unless they write that ship, uh, the Republicans have a lot of opportunities in the coming cycles. Our guest is John Hood, and uh, we've got one final segment. Probably going to sort of turn that over to John and say, John, in the final segment, what are the top issues of the day and what uh, do you think is going to happen in the immediate future? And we'll do that when we return here on Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain sleet and mud in 95 I helped tow your moving trailer in 05 I helped you get out of a ditch yeah I know I'm a bit rusty and sadly in 09 it was sparks from me your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. 
The president of the John William Polk Foundation is our guest, and that would be one John Hood, who's been with us a number of times. We've talked about uh, the Supreme Court nomination. We've talked about the economy. We've talked about the the uh, Biden administration, the problems they have. And then we've turned our attention to the state uh, and, uh, and, and focused on the upcoming primary election a little bit. We've talked about the future of both the Democratic and the Republican parties. So, John, in this final segment, let's talk about some issues. And uh, what uh, let's just say there's four big issues that you're watching today. How about giving us a list of those issues, and uh, if there's four or five, and some comments on where we think uh, we should be focusing our attention during the next uh, month or so? Well, uh, we've talked about criminal justice, about the crime problem. Crime has is, is, is gone up at least violent crime has gone up in North Carolina in the last couple of years and in much of the country. And uh, people are not happy about that and they sort of know who they blame and it's not Republicans. That's a problem for the Democrats. And I think some of them are grappling with it and some of them are in denial. Uh, And then I mentioned education. Again, problem for the Democrats. Democrats usually own the issue of education. The problem is that they got so in line with teacher unions, teacher associations, uh, that this keeping schools closed during COVID was not a popular idea. A lot of other calls that Democrats made that Governor Cooper here in North Carolina made, I, I would grant, even if I disagreed with them, they, they were not unpopular, that people wanted the COVID taken seriously. They're right to have felt that way. But closing schools, keeping them closed for a long time, masks in school, masking young people in schools, these are actually not popular ideas. And the Democrats are on, on the wrong uh, position on that, and it's going to hurt them. It's really going to hurt them. And they, I thought they had figured this out, but apparently they haven't yet. And let me mention another issue that uh, doesn't maybe get as much attention, but it's about to. And that is uh, how we admit students at the University of North Carolina system, Chapel Hill in particular, NC State. There was a lawsuit some years ago about the use of racial and ethnic preferences in university admissions. A group called Students for Fair Admissions had sued Harvard University, the oldest private university in the United States, and they sued University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the oldest public university in the United States, and they sued them on the basis that they were discriminating on the basis of race and ethnicity in college admissions and that that's a violation of Civil Rights Act and and equal protection and other things. Now, this has been litigated before. In the past, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that some use of race is permissible, though it can't be a rigid quota system. It needs to be, you can do it a little bit, but not a lot. But there's, the standards on this have been pretty, pretty mushy. Since then, since the last case, though, things have progressed rather dramatically. For example, in North Carolina, listeners are hearing me right now and thinking, man, he's bringing up a really controversial subject. And, you know, what is he, is he trying to insist that our universities become segregated again. And so, of course not. But I would also gently remind our listeners that in California, it's illegal to use race as a criteria for admissions. It's not allowed. It's not allowed in the state of Washington. It's not allowed in Michigan. It's not allowed in a number of places. And I hear tell that in the University of California system, that there are plenty of Hispanic students and African-American students getting a good education. Uh, The same is true in Washington, the same is true in Michigan. Uh, There are other ways to pursue diversity in student bodies other than adding what amounts to a big plus if you happen to be an underrepresented minority. 
such such a large difference, Don, that there are students who are who are denied admission to Chapel Hill, who have much higher grades, much higher standardized test scores, stronger resumes, stronger applications, and they're denied because they're Asian. They're not allowed to come because they're the wrong race. That is what is happening. And that's what the lawsuit clearly illustrated. And um, that is an unpopular position. It is an indefensible position. And as I said earlier, while some may hear that and say, boy, that sounds kind of controversial to get rid of racial preferences. It's really not as controversial. It's only controversial among people like who work in the university and political activists. The general public doesn't favor these things. And this was gotten rid of in places like California years ago. We just had statewide referenda in California and Washington, both blue states, where the attempt was made to reinstate racial preferences in university admissions. And the voters of those blue states said, no, they don't want it. And so North Carolina, either through legislative action or through the court case going to the Supreme Court, this is probably, Don, going to go away in the next year. It's going to become illegal. And I just want I just hope that UNC officials and everybody else is starting to think through how they're going to react to that and implement a new policy, because that's coming. And so my point is, is that front page news right now? No, it will be front page news in a few months. And I just want people to be prepared for that. The other thing I'll bring up real quick is uh, is North Carolina's infrastructure. Um, During COVID, I I commuted to my office after just a few weeks. I started going back to my office and boy, it was a dream. There was almost no one on the highway. I didn't speed much. But I did have a very comfortable drive to and from work. that has now changed back into congestion again, not as bad as it was before COVID because some, some people are still telecommuting, but we got a problem. We got a problem in two ways. We had a problem because we have still not kept up with some of the traffic demands in our urban areas in particular. We've got to figure out ways to build more and better and wider interstate quality roads to handle the traffic load. We just have to do that. Uh, we also have crumbling infrastructure that needs to be fixed. Now, North Carolina is not the worst state in the country or anything. We're, we're sort of better than average when it comes to infrastructure, but we've got to make uh, the right decisions here. And the other problem we have, and this has gotten some attention lately, is highway fatalities spiked significantly last year. Many more people killed on the highway. It's not primarily because of like bad pavement or congestion. It's because of rampant speeding. So I was kidding a little bit earlier. I don't speed very much. I'm talking about people who treat our North Carolina highways like they are racetracks. I bet you've seen this. I see this now almost every day. Somebody driving 20 miles or more above the speed limit and flitting in and out between cars. And the result of that is we've had significant increases in highway fatalities. So I, I think the legislature, I think the governor need to work on the short term problem of reinstating enforcement and norms about traffic and reducing our traffic fatalities because that we, we, we've got to take that seriously. And then we've got to think through how we're going to fund infrastructure over time as cars get more efficient. So you collect less gas tax per mile than you did before, or maybe even people buy more and more electric cars. And so you don't collect gas tax at all. We've got to figure out how we're going to fund highways. We've got to convince people that one way or the other, they have to pay for it. And they could either pay higher taxes 
or they could pay a toll or they could pay a fee or they could do something. But some somehow these toll, these roads have to be paid for in a rational way. So those are that's a big issue that's going to take a while to figure out. Uh, but in the in the immediate term on transportation, Don, um, just like we've seen a spike in in uh, opioid or uh, addiction deaths, probably related to COVID. We've also seen a spike in highway fatalities as people got used to driving sort of vacant roads and treating them as racetracks. And then as the traffic has come back in, those drivers are still doing it. Um, I also just think even crime reflects the fact that the COVID experience of people being trapped in their homes and maybe losing a job or losing an educational opportunity or just feeling trapped has resulted in problematic behavior. It has increased uh, rowdy behavior, uh, road rage, uh, fights. Um, So I I just, these are issues that I think people are, uh, these issues are, these transportation related issues are things people are really thinking about. And then I think they better be concerned with the university admissions question, because I think it's going to blow up pretty big in the next few months. What about the employment gap? All of a sudden, as we have said time and time before on this program with other guests, everywhere you look, you see we're hiring. uh, And I know in my own company, we've got a large number of openings and they're good jobs. Uh, We can't fill them. And uh, most people are saying the same thing. And here we are bringing in a lot of new industry, high paying jobs, Uh, What are we going to do about that? Because we don't seem to have enough people to fill the jobs that are open, and yet we're bringing in more and more, uh, especially high-paying jobs in the Greensboro area uh, with the uh, air manufacturer. Yeah, and uh, they've got got an aircraft plant and a Toyota battery plant going into the And uh, Charlotte's growing, and Raleigh-Durham's growing. So what are we going to do about that? Well, it's not necessarily the case that we don't have enough people to fill these jobs, but they are not filling the jobs. They're not coming out into the workforce and, and competing for and receiving these jobs. Now, some of them are underqualified uh, and they need to be retrained or they don't, they, they don't need, they don't have the right certification. I think we need to make it easier for people to become certified or not even require certification to take certain jobs. And I think we need to work some more on connecting people to training opportunities. Some of it is because, we did have an epidemic of opioid and other kinds of drug abuse. There are people who know that they couldn't pass drug tests. There are also people who simply don't feel very much incentive to come into the labor market. Yes, wages will have to go up to draw some of them in, but even higher wages for some for some of them, they just don't find it as attractive as they used to. They may have been close to retirement. COVID hit. They decided, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and call it. I was going to work for two more years or five more years, but I'm just going to go ahead and retire. And now they're not inclined to come back into the workforce. We also have young people who decided to delay their entry to the workforce and sort of relax a little bit more. It's a complicated problem. I've tried to figure out the causal factors, Don, and I think if anybody tells you they know exactly why we have so many people on the sidelines of the labor market, I think that they are exaggerating their knowledge. All of these explanations make sense, and they're probably more we've got to draw people back into the labor market and get them trained for the proper jobs, uh, make it easier for them to find those jobs, make, make sure we're not trapping people in one location when what they really need to do is move to another place where the jobs are plentiful. So we also have some mismatch between where people live and where the jobs are. Uh, but I, yes, it's a big issue. Some of it will be resolved as wages go up a little bit more and pull some people into the market. But some of it can't simply be. Uh, fixed by, by wages going up. There's some other barriers, other stickiness 
in the labor market uh, that our policymakers are going to have to help employers fix, or we're going to have persistent labor shortages in some markets and some areas, and it's going to affect all of us as consumers, not just businesses, but everybody else not getting service. And that's something we'll all feel, uh, and we're not going to like it. Well, and I don't have time to open the, this topic, but of course, rising salaries means inflation, and that's another problem we've got, so we'll have to worry about that uh, also. Uh, John, thank you so much for being with us. John Hood, uh, and we'll look forward to you being back. Jason Kong has produced our program, as he does each week, and if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do so by going to carolinanewsmakers.com, carolinanewsmakers.com, and either hear the broadcast again or share it with a friend, uh, and uh, or go back and listen to some of John's previous programs. Till next week, have a good week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.